0: Thanks, Rachel. I just love how the testimonies have been dovetailing with with where we're going. Uh, We're going to see tonight God's faithful call to welcome us back and to pursue us. So, well, I'm Joel. It's great to be here with you. If you guys have your handouts, go ahead and open there. If you have a Bible, that'd be awesome. You can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 9. So, uh, we are going to be continuing in our series that we've entitled Soon and Very Soon. And what we've been doing here in this series is we've been looking at portions of what we call prophetic literature in the Bible, sort of with a view we're building towards the book of Revelation and ultimately trying to come to some sense and understanding of it. But I recognize that as we dive into passages like these, these are some of the hard passages in the Bible. These are some of the difficult ones to understand, and so... I just wanted to briefly set a framework for you about God's word. So here, here are five truths that we believe about God's word. All right. You ready for this? All of scripture, all of your Bible, we believe is God's word. We believe that all of the scriptures are about Jesus, that they all point to him. Third, we believe that all of scripture is deeply valuable and important. Fourth, We believe that ultimately, though some are difficult, all scripture is understandable. However, we do not believe that they are all equally as easy to understand. All right, does that make sense? So some passages are easy to understand, some are harder. Why do I bring that up? Well, I recognize in a room like this, some of you might be really new to the Bible. You might be really unfamiliar with the scriptures, and you're going to come and you're going to hear this talk and passage from Daniel chapter 9, and you're going to think, oh my goodness, I have no hope of understanding this Bible whatsoever. Let me reassure you, there are other places and passages to go that are super easy to understand. So if you're curious, check out one of the four Gospels. It's just a great story of Jesus' life. You can find out about him. But because we believe that all Scripture is valuable and worth our time, We want to take some time as we come together to to press into those harder things. So if this is all new to you, try to lean in, try to understand, try to track with us. But if you're feeling a little bit like, "woo," I'm drinking from a fire hydrant, you're okay. All right? Don't ever try to drink from a fire hydrant. You can imagine what that feels like. Two, I just want to say this at the outset. When passages are harder to understand, I think it's understandable that people come out with sort of different interpretations and in what this text might be saying. And that's okay, right? It's, it's really okay. I've tried to do the best I can to understand these passages and become convinced of them, and I'm going to teach that to you. But if you're hearing it and you're disagreeing and you, you see things in your Bible and you're like, no, I don't agree with that, that's okay. I want you to engage and we welcome that sort of, of feedback and interaction. And I just want you to know, I, I still hold my convictions on some of these things, tentatively, all right? Now, there are certain things that are clear in the Bible, like Jesus is God and salvation in Him alone. We don't quibble about that, but there's some of these other things that there's a little bit of latitude on. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to set the stage for us as we dive in. Well, with that in mind, we're going to dive into the book of Daniel, and more particularly Daniel chapter 9 tonight. And let me give you an overview of where we're headed tonight. We're going to trace a theme (laughs) Throughout the entire Bible, all right? I'm going to walk you through the entire Bible looking at God's desire to build a house, a house for his name, a place where people can come and dwell with God. And and this is the storyline that we're going to see that God has designed and built a house for people to come into but that we as humans have rejected God and his house. And so he has sent us time and time again into exile. He's banished us from his presence. But then we're going to see that what God's heart is, is that heart of grace, that even though we reject him and he banishes us, he's, he's drawn to us. And so he again builds another house and invites us to come in. And this cycle happens time and time again. But we're going to see that that cycle has its final end In Jesus. All right? Sound good? I'll tell you what. You guys like home. For many of you, isn't home a great place? I love home, right? There's just something about going home. You feel comfortable. You know where the silverware is. You don't have to, like, (laughs) worry about other people. You can watch what you want to watch. You know which floorboards creak and which ones don't. Um, You know, and it's interesting. There is a sense in which we as human beings are built Home. We're, we're built to belong and to dwell. And I think that's because God, in a sense, is a God in and of Himself who dwells in community. He loves to have a home and a place to dwell. And so we are built for this home. In fact, I was looking at a study that came out recently that they have shown that families who eat together have less drug addiction and alcohol addiction in their families. There's something about being in a family and being in home. What's the point? I believe that God wants us in his family, and he's inviting us in, and so we're going to look at that theme tonight. So before we dive in, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll start our jaunt through the scriptures. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you also that you have a heart to include us in, that you have a heart to welcome us into your home. And I pray that we would not be a people who reject you, who spurn you, and therefore are cast out from your presence, but that we would understand that you have made a home for us in Christ, that we can come in and we can find rest in you. We can find a place of belonging. We can find a place of security, that we can find our ultimate fellowship and home with you. And if there are people here, my my friends and and fellow brothers and sisters here who are not dwelling with you, that do not have their home with you, would tonight be the night that they come into your home? And for those of us who do belong, would we have a deeper sense in gratitude for the home that you have given? In your name we pray. Amen. So I need to set the stage for Daniel 9. So I'm just going to warn you up front, it's going to be a little while till we get to Daniel 9, all right? But here's what I want to do first. I want to talk to you and trace through for you this idea of the temple or just more simply a house for God's name. This is a theme that has run all throughout the story of the Bible. In fact, as you open up the beginning pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we see God creating the world. And if you read the whole of scripture, you realize that God created the world to be his home. So if you look at Psalm 104, it says this, talking about creation. It says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Did you catch the house imagery in what he's saying? God has built the earth to be his home. This is meant to be the place where we dwell with God. And as we are going to see in the next section, we rebelled against God. We were cast out of his home in the garden. But as the storyline of scripture continues, we see God's desire to keep building a home. So if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, Abraham initially was a wanderer, right? He, he spent his years wandering through, never having a place. But in the end, God promises him that he will ultimately give him and his descendants a home. A forever home. And so as the storyline continues, we see that his descendants don't initially get a home. In fact, they get put into exile, into slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And then God calls them out in the Exodus. And if you remember, though, what does he promise them? He promises them a land, a place to come and to dwell and to be with God. And, uh, I want to give you a verse that I think is very central to this theme of God's dwelling, because as the people of God are coming out of the Exodus, as they're, they're coming into this place where they are going to dwell, God tells them that he wants to build a house. So listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. And so he says this. This is God speaking, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord God, your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord, your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town. Did you catch? There's a lot around it, but right there at the heart in verse 11, he says, Then to the place, right? There's going to be a place. The Lord your God will choose. So God's going to pick a spot in this new land, and he's going to what? He's going to make his name dwell there. God's saying, I'm going to have an address, all right? I'm going to have a place where you can come and you can visit me. You can come and talk with me. And in fact, that's what he invites them to do. He says, bring your meat. These are your offerings, right? And the people would eat together with God. And bring your whole family in and gather in front of me and dwell with me. And so as you're catching it, we see this take place as you trace through the history of Israel. So God says, I'm going to make a place for my name to dwell and initially, God sets up this town called Shiloh with a tent. And the people of God come and they fellowship with him there. But then later, there's a temple that's built in the city of Jerusalem, a place where they would dwell. That temple, as we're going to see, was destroyed, but it was rebuilt. And then ultimately, as you come into the New Testament, we're going to see that Jesus calls himself the new temple, the new place where God would dwell. And so then he builds the church, which is also called his temple. It's the place Now, as we, the gathered people of God, God is dwelling in our midst. And when we finally get to Revelation, and yes, we're going to get there, we're going to see that ultimately God comes to dwell in a city, a heavenly Jerusalem with us. What's the point of tracing all this house stuff through the Bible? Here's the point. God wants to live with you. That's the point. God wants to dwell With you. He is desirous of being with you. You know, as I think about this whole theme of home and God's desire to dwell, I can't help but my mind go to my daughter, Jasmine, who we adopted. We adopted Jasmine when she was about six years old from the foster care system. And uh, as is fairly typical, she had been in a number of different homes as she had gone through uh, her time in foster care. And so I remember we were coming up on our adoption day and we'd finally gotten a date uh, set by the court that we would be able to adopt her. It was awesome. And I remember being able to tell her, Jasmine, you have a forever home. You will never have to leave. You will never have to be sent away. You are invited into our family forever. We want you to dwell with us and we don't ever want you to go away. Friends, I want you to know that's the heart of God for you. There is a forever home for you and he's inviting you in. And so that's the application for this point tonight is to come home. Come home to God. He is inviting you into his family. You can see it all throughout the whole of scripture that God is relentless about his desire to dwell with you. And so friends, we need to stop seeking temporary homes. We need to come and live in the forever home that God is offering. How many of you would say that you have, and you don't have to raise hands, but you can sort of do it internally. How many of you would say that you have a great family, right? Your, your family is an awesome place. I could say that I have a great family. My dad's quirky. My mom's awesome, but they're awesome. They're all awesome, all right? So, uh, and I love my family. And it's tempting to think that that's sort of home, that's the place where I belong. But friends, I want you to realize that even as the greatest family, there's a sense where that family will fail. They're still fighting. They're still bickering. There's still selfishness at play and at work. And so we have to remember that even our earthly families are not ultimately going to be the home where we belong. We need to seek the forever home that God is offering. And the same is true here. I love this group, this fellowship here on campus. It is so much fun to sit down and see you guys at dinner and the banter and all the things that are going back and forth. You can tell that God has knit you all together and he's brought you together as a family, right? And that's great and that's wonderful. But I'll tell you what, I also know some of you don't like each other, all right? And there are little spats and quarrels and things that happen even in this awesome thing that God is doing. And so as awesome as this fellowship is, we need to remember that this is not the ultimate home. This is a foretaste. God is working in his people to build a home, but this is not the ultimate, and we need to seek the forever home. Friends, only Christ is our home. He's the only one where we can come for eternal dwelling. So come home, all right? All right, so we've looked at the theme of home. Now we're gonna flip the side of the coin, all right? So we've seen God's desire to dwell with us, but now we're gonna look at our stupid and innate tendency to hate God's house, all right, and to reject him and then his response to us. And here's what I mean. As you trace the whole story of God, God is in the habit of building a house and we are in the habit of sinning and God's saying, I can no longer dwell with you. You must be kicked out. This is what we call exile or banishment. And it's another theme that happens all throughout the scripture, And so we're going to look and I just want to walk you through some of the exiles that happened because if you remember, Daniel is living in the time of the exile. He's in a period of banishment because of the sins of God's people. So think about it. Garden of Eden, God's initial dwelling place. If you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve sin, they rebel. They say, I want to be God. I want to be ruler. And so this is what is said in Genesis chapter three. It says this in verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Notice these verbs. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the chair of him and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see what God's response is when we mess up his house He kicks us out and says, you cannot come back in. And as I alluded to earlier, we see in that call for God to build a house for his name as the people are coming out of the Exodus, the next house we see God ultimately building. He promises it to Abraham, to the people of Israel. They're finally coming into the promised land. The next house he establishes, this is actually a little known fact in the Bible. Some of you are not even aware of this. The next house that God establishes is in the town of Shiloh. So the tabernacle comes and dwells in this town called Shiloh. Here's what Joshua 18 verse 1 says. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. This was the initial tabernacle or God's house. And the land lay subdued before them. So God tells them, here's the place I want my name to dwell. It's in Shiloh. But then into the scene... In this place of Shiloh comes some wicked priests, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these sons are wicked sons, and they start sleeping with women in the Lord's house. And there's all sorts of horrible things that go on. They even choose to use the ark as sort of a talisman as they are going to battle against the Philistines. And God becomes enraged. And he says he's going to depart His glory is going to depart from this house. He's leaving the presence. In fact, what happens is the two sons of Eli die and one of their wives is giving birth to a son and they name him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. God says, I'm gonna kick you out from here. And instead he chooses to set up another place and that place is Jerusalem, the city that God chooses. And all of this, just so you're not, thinking I'm lying and making this up, is recorded in Psalm 78. And this is what it says. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. And he delivered his power to the captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. The priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke from as sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. This is God's response to his own people being wicked. And then it says this, he rejected the tent of Joseph, he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, this is Jerusalem, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. See, friends, Jerusalem was not the initial place that God wanted to dwell. It was at Shiloh, but the people rejected. And so what we see here is that God sets up another in the house of Jerusalem. He installs David as king. And if you recall, David's son, Solomon, builds the temple. So we get another house that God builds. But what happens? Even that house, the people of God choose to reject. And so as we're going to see in the story of Daniel, they are sent into exile again. God is in the process of rejecting Jerusalem again. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what's the point? Friends, here's the point that I want you to see. Sin destroys our relationship with God. And sends us into exile. Sin always breaks our dwelling with God, and because of his holiness, he must banish us and send us away. And I think this is significant for us to realize that God has to send us away because of his holiness. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. It's a story of a son who had everything. He, he had all the father's wealth, all the father's love, and yet all the son wanted was his own wealth, his own riches, and so he, in a sense, wishes his father dead and he asks for the inheritance and he goes off, as Jesus tells the story, and squanders all of his wealth. He wastes it all and ends up eating pig food just to make ends meet. Now, the story is a beautiful story of the father welcoming back this son. And we're going to see that that is God's heart. But I want you to notice what led this man to the exile from his father. The father never kicked him out, right? It was his own choices. His own desires led him away from the Lord. And so what's the application? What's, what's, why am I driving at this? I think many of us ask the question, of ourselves as we're walking through life, why is God distant from us? Why does he seem so far off? Friends, it's because we have walked away. It's not because God doesn't desire to dwell with us. In fact, we've seen that it's his heart. It's because we have walked away. We have set ourselves up as God. We have set ourselves up as king. And so friends, it's a simple point that I'm trying to make tonight. But the point is this, God is standing and he's calling and welcoming you back. All we have to do is turn from our sinful ways and come to him and he longs to welcome us home like the prodigal son. We need to see that it's our own things that are leading us into the exile. All right, that was all set up to get us ready for Daniel chapter nine in this prophetic vision. So as you kind of follow along, we've been seeing that what God has been doing is he's had this desire to build a house for his name, a place for God's people to dwell. But the people of God have been rejecting him. And so then he sends them into exile. And so as we pick up the storyline in Daniel, Daniel is in the time where God had sent the people who had been dwelling in Jerusalem into exile. The Babylonians, a foreign nation, had come in. They had destroyed Jerusalem and they had taken Daniel and some of his friends back to Babylon. And they were in the kingly courts being trained and groomed to be in the ways of the Babylonians. But I need to set the backstory a little bit. Oddly enough, in the time of Daniel, through the prophet Jeremiah, God told them exactly how long this exile would be. So if you look at the prophet Jeremiah, he says this, the whole land shall be a ruin and a waste. This is talking about Jerusalem and Israel. Shall be totally destroyed. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. And then he says 70 years. He gives it a specific number. He says, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And you might be asking, well, that's oddly specific, right? Why would God say, I'm going to banish you and I'm going to destroy Jerusalem for 70 years? Well, it gets crazy, all right? Look, we're going to look at Second Chronicles. Towards the end of Second Chronicles, it tells us why we have specifically 70 years in exile. It says this in Second Chronicles. He took into exile, into Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. And here's why. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. Now some of you are going, what in the world is he talking about? Well, let me fill you a little bit in on the, the law and the rhythms that the Israelites were supposed to live under according to God's law and design. You're going you're gonna to like this. All right. You ready for this? I would have liked to have been in Israel if they actually carried this out. God told them initially in the law, when you are growing your crops, I want you to farm for six years. And every seventh year, I want you to let your fields lie fallow. I want you to just stop working for an entire year. Now, you could imagine in an ancient agricultural society where you got your food from what you grew, okay, God saying, I'll provide for you for those six years, and I'll provide enough that you can have everything you need to eat for the seventh year, but you just can't grow anything for that seventh year. You need to let it rest, kind of in the same rhythm that we should, in theory, do it on a weekly basis, right? Work for six days, take a day off. Well, you can imagine Israel was not feeling very keen on this, like, you're serious? I have to not... Grow anything for a whole year and you're going to feed me. So, get a load of this. For 490 years since the establishment of the kingdom to the time of the exile, the Israelites had not kept their Sabbath years. So, any of you guys good math people? So, 490 years, how many Sabbath years did they miss? 70. 70. Okay. So, God says. Time, time is up. You, need to, you owe me 70 Sabbath years. I've been kind of keeping track and you've been missing. Okay? And so now I'm going to give the land its rest by pulling you off of it. And it's going to have it 70 years. You tracking with that? So this is why God tells him that. All right. All that was set up for Daniel 9. Daniel went into exile right at the beginning of those 70 years. He's now, in Daniel 9, an old man. And he's nearing the end of the 70 years. And he knows that God says at the end of 70 years, something's going to happen. But he doesn't know what. And he's asking God what is going to happen at the end of these 70 years. And how do we know this? On your page right there, verse 2 of chapter 9 says this. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the des- desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then Daniel goes into this prayer, pleading and asking God to forgive the people of Israel and to restore. So he knows 70 years are coming. God, what are you going to do? And that's where we pick up. And this, verses 24 through, what is it? 27, this is God's vision and response that he gives to Daniel as he's asking what's going to happen next. So let's read and try to understand. It says this, 70 weeks. Now, I got to give you a little hint here. They translate it weeks, but literally in the Hebrew, it's just the word seven. That's how they talked about a week. So it's literally 77s. Does that make sense? 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem. So 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. If you're just casually scanning that list, what does that sound like? To put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness? Sounds a lot like what they talk about Jesus doing, doesn't it? We'll get there, okay? Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, or literally a Christ, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Then for 62 weeks or sixty-two sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, An anointed one or a Christ shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come the one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, you ready? We're going to dive in. Thank you, Keith. Yes, so here's what I want you to see first. Did you notice that he talks about another 77s, right? So what got them into the exile? 77s, right, that they had missed 490 years of failing to follow God got them into the exile. So therefore, they have to spend 70 years in it. But here's what God's doing. He's saying there's coming another seventy sevens, And then this is going to be the solution to the exile. This is going to be my response to the, the prior 490 years. So you got 490, 70, 490 years. And in the, I'll just give you the brief summary of what's going on here. God's promising in this passage... And then I'll try to convince you of it. that yes, at the end of those 70 years of exile, they are going to rebuild the temple. And the temple is going to exist for about another 490 years. But if you notice towards the end, it says that temple will be destroyed. And then a king or a Christ will come at that time. Let's walk through it a little bit and see if we can kind of unpack it a little bit more. Did you notice? And I think, uh, Keith, next slide, I believe. All right. We're going to follow this fall of creation, uh, uh, creation, fall, and redemption. But did you notice that this seventy sevens is divided up into 7, 62, and 1? You ready for that? You got that? Did you notice he does that in there? So if you do the math, seven sevens is 49 years. If you also do the math, 62 sevens is 434 years. And the final seven is about a seven-year period. If you notice that first period, he says back in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem, there shall be, and the coming of anointed one, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. So what he's saying, if you kind of follow the logic is, there's going to go a time where the word is going to go out, that the temple should be rebuilt. And then... By the end of seven weeks, it will be built, okay? So this 49-year period. If you actually look at world history, in 537 BC, King Cyrus decreed that the exiles could return back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And that decree was finalized uh, in 457 BC by King Artaxerxes. And if you're interested, it's recorded in Ezra 7 11 through 26, okay? So if we take 457 BC as the time when the decree was finalized to go out and take another 49 years to 407 BC, and you look in history, that time encompasses the the books of the Bible of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And indeed, during that time, the temple was rebuilt. Crazy, okay? It's almost like God knew what was happening, okay? So we have the temple rebuilt. Then we have this period of 62 weeks or 434 years where Daniel tells us that the temple will exist, but there will be troubled times. And again, if you look at history, this is the time of the Maccabees and others. If you're nerding out, you can read about this, all right? But these are the Jewish wars. There's a lot of wars that are happening in Israel at this time, but the temple remains, Now here's what I wanna do and I wanna come to this final week. Here's where it gets crazy. So if you take, go back, 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 there we go. Stay there. All right, if you add the 49 and the 434 years, you got that? And you use the year when the decree went out and you do the math, you come to the date 27 AD that this final week will start, okay? Jesus, the crucifixion, is dated somewhere between 27 and 34 AD, right within this week that Daniel talks about. Now, I want to look at this last week that Daniel talks about, and that's the next slide, Keith. It's up there. Keep going one little more. All right. So this is the passage. I want you to kind of see what he says is going to happen in this final week. He says one. He says the anointed one is cut off. The word anointed... the he- that's the, the English word. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. And the Greek word for anointed is Christ. So in other words, he's saying that a Messiah or a Christ is going to come and is going to be cut off in this time. And as we know, Jesus came and was crucified. Down a little bit later, it says he shall make a strong covenant, right? And if you look at the, the New Testament, Jesus initiates the new covenant in his blood. Now, sorry, Keith, I have these slides out of order. If you go back, I want to tell you very briefly about a very significant historical event. This event happened in 70 AD, and it was when the Roman army came in and destroyed the temple that was in Jerusalem, okay? I had to go. This is actually a picture I took. I went to Rome. It's great. If you ever get to go, go. Right next to the Colosseum is this ark, okay? And this is a huge ark that you can walk under. Any of you familiar in Paris with the Ark of Triumph, Right? This is based off of Romans. Whenever there's a military victory, they put up arcs to say, we're awesome, okay? And what they would do is they would put up pictures and reliefs of the people that they had destroyed. I don't know if you catch it here, but do you see these people being held in bondage? What are they carrying? You guys see what they're carrying? It's the menorah, right? This is the temple artifacts that they had gotten. The point is this, so a very proven historic fact, that in 70 AD, not too long after this, the temple was destroyed. And in fact, in coming weeks, we're going to look that Jesus even prophesied that this was coming, that the temple was going to be destroyed. But go back, Keith, to the other one. We see in this text that he says the prince of the people who is to come. I believe this is talking about uh, Titus and the Roman armies. They come and they do, in fact, destroy the temple as is promised here. And if you look at the history around this time as well, when the Romans destroyed the temple, that's when the sacrificial system ended. And we see him describing the end of the sacrificial system here as well. Since that point, ever since 70 A.D., Jews have no longer sacrificed, but they've gone to the synagogue system. And then it describes also the wings of the abomination. And there was the Romans set up things within the temple to desecrate it. Long story short, you guys catch what's going on? Daniel was told and foresaw this 490-year period after the temple was rebuilt at the time in which the Messiah would come. Here are some key lessons that I want you to see from this. Rather than getting sucked into all the details, I want you to see this. Friends, this is going to be a a repeated refrain as we go through these passages together. Here is one of the key lessons. Friends, God's word is true. This was spoken some 500 years before Jesus ever came, and God laid out and foretold the coming of a Messiah in this time frame. Friends, there is some sense that we should have a confidence in what God speaks because his word is borne out as true. I think a second implication is this. If you take this whole thread that we've been walking through and seeing how God has built a house for his name and then there's been this exile and house and exile um what we see is that god's progress is slow it's not climactic it's not this once and done and i forgot to connect a few dots so let me do it now did you see that god initially created us to be in fellowship with him and then he built these various places but then they ultimately ended up being destroyed But what I didn't mention is, is if you look at what is described in this last week, look at how verse 24 talks about it to put uh, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to tone for iniquity. And did you catch that word to bring in everlasting righteousness? This is God's final house. Jesus is the final house. There's no other house needed. This is the final plan that God has brought in. And so what I was trying to say is that it's helpful to realize that God works progressively. Some of you are here, and if you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you know and you hope that you could end sin struggles with the snap of a finger, right? For me, it's eating. I was just lamenting to my wife. I'm like, why do I keep struggling with eating and eating too much? And she's like, well, just stop. I'm like, I know. Like, I just just keep getting it wrong. But what I what's so interesting is as I look back, I see that in all the areas where God has grown me, I don't think I can think of any of them as a snap of a finger. But God progressively and slowly works us through, and that's how he even does it in history. There's something that he teaches us through that whole process. And so, don't be discouraged if you're continuing to struggle and you're only seeing little steps forward. In the same way that God built his house, he is slowly building you. Third implication is this. God is willing to destroy what he loves and what we love in order to win us back. Friends, when we start to build other houses and turn to other things, he is willing to destroy in very harsh ways the things that we are looking to, the things that we hope in, in order to bring us back. We won't get to look at this, but we will in future weeks. This destruction of Jerusalem that God brings is horrific. There are accounts of, of women eating their own children as the Romans surrounded the army, the army surrounded Jerusalem and starved them out. It's just incredible. But God's heart is that we turn and he will do, go to great lengths to help us to turn. And the last thing I want you to see tonight is this, that Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place. He's the place that God has finally set up. He is the home. There's, this, there's no other plan, <laughs> This is the final plan that God has. It's the home where we are to dwell. And so friends, we all long for home and Jesus is that home that he's invited us into. So with that in mind, let me pray and then we'll let you break up into groups and and talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we just have walked through the whole of the scriptures that we see your heart to dwell with us. Father, I pray that we would not turn that we would not scorn, that we would not reject your offer. But I pray that we would come home primarily through Jesus and faith in him, that we would find our home in him. Father, thank you for your word that confirms your truth. Thank you that when you say something, we can be confident that it will happen. And we can look and we can know that Jesus is the one that you promised. You foretold his time. You foretold what would happen and it all came to pass. And so I pray that it would remove doubt. It would remove skepticism. This is not the only reason we believe, but it's one. And so we ask that you would increase our faith. Father, give, uh, give us a home. Help us to, to live in it. In your name we pray. Amen.